0: our gift to you. We'd love for you to have one. And if you don't, it is important, though it's written in, um, in your bulletin, it's important to be able to have it before you. So, Psalm chapter 12, would you stand and let me read to us from God's Word? A Psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. The grass withers and the flowers fade. God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please, this summer, as you know, we're entering into the sanctuary of our soul, as we've been doing for the past uh, four summers now, looking at the Psalms, because the Psalms show the, hu- the full range of human emotions. And one of the struggles that we have as Christians, if you're anything like me, is that sometimes you will tend to grow in knowledge, especially in the Midwest or the South and in Oklahoma, you will tend to grow in knowledge of God's Word because we still live in a relatively uh, churched culture. But your knowledge of God's Word sometimes extends beyond the bounds of your emotional ability to appropriate it in other words your iq exceeds your eq and so the psalms are given to god's people to help us have a higher emotional quotient to recognize how we are to express ourselves, without tamping down our emotions they actually provide guardrails for us to let out in full force the whole range of human emotion and to do so without sin in a way that honors him so We're going to look at Psalm 12 today. And kiddos, I want you to listen for three words. Children, do you see my face? Listen for three words. I want you to listen for the word scared in the dark, the phrase. I want you to listen for the word battle cry. And I want you to listen for the word Navy SEAL. Would you listen for those three things as I preach? Scared in the dark, battle cry, and Navy SEAL. Have you ever been... Scared of the dark? Just this morning, one of my uh, boys came down the stairs this morning to our bedroom and, and said, Daddy, I, was, I had a bad dream. I was scared in the dark. And he ran to us as his parents. Have you ever been scared in the dark? Bruce Stewart was a vice president. He had a big project to present to the CEO. He had a huge client lined up. He'd been with this client for years. The client owed him. The client told him, yes, we'll close the deal. Bruce thought it was in the bag and finds out that the week of the closing, before his big presentation to the CEO, something terrible happened. That the client who gave him his word that he would close with him said actually bruce 's plans have changed because this named the competitor of his came in and undercut you by a few percentage points, and we 've given our business now to him and Bruce sitting there with a deal now totally uh, uh, had evaporated before his eyes before he has to present to the CEO, has no time to renegotiate the deal, and he thinks to himself this I can't say all the words that he said to me in the story, but this guy lied to my face about closing the deal, and he backed out, and I got undercut. I was lied to. Children aren't the only ones who are scared in the dark. When you're trying to make quarter quotas and deals fall through, men and women, you know what it's like to feel like you're scared in the dark. Families know what it's like to be scared in the dark whenever their children... Come home from college and say, "Hey, mom and dad, I've got some um, uh, difficult news. I don't want to go to college anymore, or I'm I'm pregnant, or I um, I want to move in with my girlfriend, or uh, my boyfriend and I are planning to elope." Listen, parents, have you ever been scared in the dark? David here is scared in the dark. This is a psalm that is written. We don't have a whole lot of context for it. But David here is on an island of one. He's a minority of one, and he looks around and he says, I'm surrounded by people who are lying to me. I'm surrounded by people, Father, who I feel abandoned by. I'm surrounded by, Lord, a crooked generation where I feel like I'm totally alone. Have you ever been scared in the dark? David breaks this psalm down, we can break it down into three very simple points. The decline, the boast, and the security. The decline that we fear, verses 1 and 2. The boasts that we hear, verses 3 to 4. And the security that we have, verses 5 through 12. The decline, the boast, and the security. Listen. Other men who were a minority of one would have just given in. And David here, in the midst of his need, cries out for the Lord because he, first of all, sees that everything around him seems to be declining. Today, we live in a culture that seems to just be uh, falling apart. We've we've held certain cultures up in the past as, as what is normative, and we aren't able to shift with the changing of the cultures, and we find that different moral standards seem to prevail, and we really do, as Christians, oftentimes find ourselves to be, if we're honest, scared amidst the darkness. Uh, uh, take, for example, the number of Christians um, who are attending church. The average uh a person in the church attends church 1.8 times a month. That's if you're a regular attender. In 1900, there were, um, according to Ralph um, uh, uh, Winter, who's like the leading uh, missiologist, from 1900 to 2000, the number of churches per 1,000 people dramatically decreased. In 1900, there were 27 churches per uh, per 10,000 people. And at the close of the century, there were only 11 churches per 10,000 people. According to the Francis A. Schaeffer Institute of Christian Leadership, every year more than 4,000 churches close their doors compared to just over 1,000 new church plants. Every year, 2.7 million church members fall into inactivity, And this translates into the reality that people are leaving the church in droves, and from their research, they found that they are leaving as hurting and wounded victims of some kind of abuse, disillusionment, or just plain neglect. According to the Pew Research Center in the United States, it remains home. To more Christians than any other country in the world, and a large majority of Americans, roughly 7 in 10, continue to identify with some brand of the Christian faith. But the percentage of adults who say that they're Christians has dropped by nearly 8% in just seven years. And over the same period, the number of Americans who say that they're religiously unaffiliated has gained by more than 6%. And the share of Americans who identify with no Christian faith at all has also inched up by one and a quarter percent. Listen, did you know that the United States now ranks third in the world behind China and India as the country with the most non-Christians in it? I'm going to say that again in case you missed it. The U.S., by sheer numbers, yes, not percentages, but by sheer numbers, is the third most non-Christian country by sheer numbers behind China and India. It is, according to many missionaries from Korea, part of the unreached people groups of the world. Half of all churches in the U.S. did not add any members to their ranks in the past two years. Uh, when Lauren and I were on our vacation vacation, um, Uh, for the last several weeks. It was a great vacation. We prayed for you, and uh, we got to watch Facebook Live. It was fun to be able to watch you online. And uh, I had dinner with the vice president of a seminary and he was telling us that they had given um, a couple of honorary doctorates to Tim Keller and to Sinclair Ferguson, and, and uh, they were sitting around before the commencement, and, and these, these seminary professors, and, and Tim Keller, if you know that name, and Sinclair Ferguson, if you know his name, these long-standing pastors and, and uh, professors, were talking about how this generation— that's coming up right now Our children. They're the first generation when they really believe are gonna have to count the cost for being a Christian in the US. We have ridden this amazing tidal wave of cultural dominance for so long, but this generation coming up will be the first time when it actually costs you something to go to church because these trends perhaps may not abate, they may continue. And so therefore, it's all the more important that we, even amidst the uh, declining culture that we uh, grew up in, are able to recognize what it is that we are doing on Sunday morning. Why is it that, that we are fear so much the decline of the Christian majority? Because God's word never promises us that will be maintained for us. And so David here says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. And um it's a in in a, it's a substantival adjective in hebrew it just means it's a it's a singular description of what is plural it's it's like saying the godly nation is gone the godly church is gone the godly culture is gone it's like saying um where is our nation today the godly one is gone For the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbors. In in David's particular situation, he was talking about the way people were using their speech. They were uttering lies. With flattering lips and a double heart. Literally in Hebrew, it says, with a heart and a heart. With one heart, they say one thing. With another heart, they say another. With a double heart, they speak. And with flattering lips. Uh, Isaiah said something very similar to this when he said in Isaiah 30, um, say to the seers, they do not see, and say to the prophets, do not uh, uh, prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, the pagans in Israel cried out. Prophesy illusions. Would you speak to us smooth things? To say he speaks with flattering lips there in verse 2, if you see that. Is to say that they speak with smooth things. It reminds you, doesn't it, of First, Second uh, Timothy four three, when it says there will be a day when people's ears are itching to hear smooth talk from preachers, flattering speech, and not the gospel. He goes on. He says in uh, verse three, David says, "May the Lord cut off all the flattering lips, the tongues that make great boasts," in the midst of a culture that begins to decline. However, you want to define it, whether it's culturally or morally or uh, spiritually, it's in decline. You find more and more people are going to the public square to make great boasts. Paul, uh, uh, David here, makes a great boast. David says, May the Lord cut off all the flattering lips. May he cut off the tongues that make great boasts. Very brutal and costly image. The idea of boasting in the ancient Near East was a metaphor um, that the Lord picked up on and used throughout all the Bible to talk about the way we proclaim our faith. What was a boast? A boast was a battle cry. A boast was something that you did that developed before two countries went to war. A boast was trying to say what you hoped to be true and so the king, of course, would ride along the front of his soldiers before the battle line, and he would, he would boast about what they're going to do. And he would, he would like, how do, you get, how do you get grown men to run into battle and face certain death? I mean, how do, you, how do you work yourself up on the fields of battle to kick your horse and to gallop into what you know will probably be the end of your life? You make a great boast, and you listen to the king, and the king says... Before the end of the day, we are going to put their king's head on our banner standard. And then they ride into war. Boasts, why um, we tell our children not to boast these days, but to boast in the ancient Near East meant to be something that we long to be true. It meant to be something that we're putting our hope in, our trust in. And so you can think about it, um, today we have boasts. Uh, we, just, we just call them pep rallies. <laughs> and before the state championship, what do you do? You get, you know, you get uh, eight cheerleaders up there, and, and they're dancing around, doing their dance, and what are they doing? They're doing a ritual boast, and they're saying, you know, um, uh, we're going to stop them, and we're going to beat them, and we're going to, you know, and, and the whole school is getting riled up. We're the Rams, you know, and, and we're going to take them down. I mean, that's a ritual boast. David here says, Lord, they are boasting. They're making great boasts with their tongue. An image that James picked up on in James 3, didn't he? And says, oh, the power of a little tongue. It's like the rudder of a ship. It's like the spark that can start a forest fire. Those who say with our tongues, here's our creed. With our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? What do you boast in? God says what you boast in determines the object of your faith. It always has throughout the ancient Near East, and it still does today, and in the New Testament. The New Testament writers, of course, picked up on this idea of boasting. Jeremiah nine twenty three says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the strong man in his strength, nor the rich man in his riches, but let him boast, what? Boast that he knows me. Boast in the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians, we know that Paul picks up on this idea from Jeremiah and he says, right, we don't boast in Paul or Apollos. Listen, we're Christ's. We're unified under Christ's. And let our boast be not in the preacher that we pick or the culture that we tend to join or the denomination that we go to. Let our boast be in the gospel. And I cannot emphasize to you as a friend and as your pastor how important it is that you know people and you love them and treasure them that go to other churches in our city, that you encourage them, and that you end the sense of competition amongst Christians. Because one of the things that we were reminded of when Lauren and I were um, in New York and Princeton over the past several weeks is, again, how much the church is under siege in the Northeast. And here, it seems like the churches are under siege against each other. But up there, it doesn't matter if you're Methodist or Presbyterian or even if you're Catholic. They are joining forces together because they're dodging the same bullets. And we too in this culture in Owasso need to be a church that leads by knowing other churches and loving them and praying for them and caring for them and not being afraid of them and not being competitive with them, but praying for them. And that we boast not in the PCA or not in the Reformed Church or not in Acts 29, but we boast in Christ because He alone is the one that can sustain us. David says they're making great boasts with their tongue. And this was the reason why David felt so certain that he needed to cry out to the Lord. Because how do you face boasts as Christians? It sounds uh, uh, abstract when I say it like that. How do you face people who are just like boasting on social media all about their, uh, their, their lifestyle or they're boasting all about what they've done. They're boasting all about these things that you may know are against what God desires. How do you face that? How do you face people who are saying, you don't need a church, you just need a relationship with Jesus. You don't need the body of Christ. You just need to worship Jesus in your own way. And the golf is a lot better and cheaper on Sunday morning. You face that by making a counter-boast in your heart. You say, no, my boast is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And he's created me in such a way that he wants me to move into community, not to pull away from it. For it's facing my fear of community that actually I find myself and my security and my growth in the Christian life that much more vital and that much more vibrant. He says, He says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue, we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? That is the exact same kind of boast that we have learned from the very beginning, isn't it? When Satan came to Eve and he made a great boast. Did God really say that? No. He just doesn't want you to be like him, Eve. And so that pathway has continued ever since. So we see in chapter 12 of the Psalms, the decline, maybe that we fear, but it is reality. And it certainly is for our day and the decline of the church. We see the boast that we hear. And are we able to give a counter boast? And then lastly, we see the security that we have. Look with me at verse 5. It says, Because the poor are plundered and because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he belongs. The words, also it could be translated, the promises of God are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, or a furnace made of clay in Hebrew, purified seven times. And then David bursts out into prayer. This is one of only a few times in David's life when he gives, he he cries out for answers and at the same time he receives an oracle from the Lord almost instantaneously. Another time that this happens is at the end of his life in 2 Samuel 23 when he cries out for the Lord at the end of his life and the Lord almost immediately gives him the response. And David cries out and he says you O lord will keep them you will guard us from this generation forever he has this amazing sense of confidence in the promises of god on every side the wicked will prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of men uh, lord and i were when we were on vacation we were talking about an article that we read um, about navy seals which is always kind of cool because everybody likes to learn about navy seals because deep inside every one of us we kind of think we could have made it if we would have tried right men and you know that there's that Navy SEAL part where they, they, they bind your hands and they bind your feet and they drop you in the swimming pool, right? The part that everybody knows about that's been publicized. And um, they, they teach these incredible athletes, men and women, by the way, um, to swim for five minutes with their hands bound. And you know what's so interesting about that? Is that they bind their hands and their feet to teach them a very, very important lesson. The way that you you prepare for that exercise um, is very counterintuitive. Because if you bind my hands and feet and you drop me in the Owasso Athletic Club pool after, I hope this sermon's good enough that you don't do that. But if you drop me in the pool and then you ask me to survive for five minutes, I'm going to try to swim. I'm going to try to use my hands and my feet and try to swim. But Navy SEALs know in this test where men have died doing it, They know that the first thing you cannot do is try to swim. And this article is explaining how you actually pass this exercise. And it's incredibly harrowing because it requires you to almost drown in order to pass it. And that's the point. And the way that you pass this exercise is that you not only don't swim, but you stop swimming. And you actually sink. And you let yourself, with hands and feet bound, fall to the bottom of that pool. Sometimes that pool can be as deep as 15 feet. And when you hit the bottom of that pool, you gently push up with your legs. And you kick up, and you let the momentum of your kick— I shouldn't say gently, it's at 15 feet, you better kick hard. You kick up, and you let the momentum of that kick propel you back to the surface. You grab a breath, and you repeat the cycle again. And you do that for five minutes. It's totally counterintuitive, isn't it? So also it is in the Christian life. When God calls you to have security in Him, what we want to do is we want to go out and we want to fix everybody around us who are acting vile. And we want to fix everybody who's lying. Don't talk like that. Quit doing that. And we want to try to control our situation. What the Lord asks us to do is He says... Your hands and your feet are bound. I am the one that's in control, and I want you to do something that is so hard for you to do. I want you to trust me. And I actually want you to stop trying so hard to be so good. And I want you to rest in what I've done for you. And I want you to let yourself go to the bottom. And when you're at the bottom, I want you to kick with everything in you in faith back to the top and let the momentum propel you back to the surface where you get a drink of the gospel. You come to church every Sunday. You've been propelling down all week and you kick and in worship, you come to the surface. That's what worship is. It's inhaling. You get your breath and then you go back down and the cycle repeats 52 times a year. That is what Jesus wants us to do and be as His people. And that is how you survive, not in trying to maintain control of your environment. Especially as the environment and the culture changes around us. He wants you to be able to sink deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel because you cannot control the culture. Your hands and your feet are bound. So you, we, you, we have got to learn how to survive the exercise. It's not just five minutes, it's 80, 90, sometimes 100 years, isn't it? And as we learn to do that, you know what it teaches us? It teaches us how to be warriors for the gospel. It teaches us how to swim farther and it teaches us how to, um, to perform better in light of Jesus' performance for us because the pressure is off of us to try to earn God's favor. He smiles upon us and he looks at us and he says, I'm so pleased with you because of the work of my son. You're in him and I love you. And we have to remind ourselves week after week after week that the security that we have is so certain it is too good and too real not for us to cry out to Him and help. Can we do that? Too secure to not cry out for help. That is an aphorism of the Christian life. And so rather than to be scared in the dark, Even as you're sinking in the water, as it were, with your hands and your feet bound, you're able to cry out to Him and say, Lord, with flattering lips they speak. I seem like I'm surrounded by vileness all the way around, but I cry out to you for help. And Trinity is a place where we want you to cry out together and help. And we want you to look at your brothers and sisters every Sunday and we want you to say, hey, let the momentum drive you to the surface. And let's take a breath of the gospel together. And let's survive the changing cultures together, just like David did many millennia ago. And to say, oh Lord, save us from this crooked generation. It seems like with flattering lips, they're pouring out lies, but we will be a people who are men and women of integrity. And that is how the church begins to advance. Not by building a bigger building, although we long for a building. Not by having greater and greater programs, although we want there to be space where we're able to facilitate gospel change in your family's life but by being the kind of people who are not afraid of the culture, but are able to go to battle in it for the sake of the gospel, to transform it, not to always be against it, but just like you read in your words of preparation, to be able to be like Paul, who is able to wear his culture like a comfortable suit of clothes. He can shift to other cultures temporarily if he wishes to do so, but he's released to admire and appreciate the different expressions of Christ shining out through other cultures. Can you do that? Do you know the other cultures? As the darkness begins to cave in on you and come in on you, oh, all the more we should realize we have a security that is too sure not to allow us to cry out, oh Lord, who do we have in heaven but you? The earth has nothing we desire besides you. Our flesh and our heart may fail, but you are the strength of our life and our portion forever. The decline that we fear, the boasts that we hear, the security that we have, this is our life, Christian. And we do it in the confidence of knowing that Jesus Christ is with you and for you and will protect you no matter how deep the darkness becomes. Because the light of Christ is in you. He shines out through you. And we as a church are able to do that together. Amen? Oh, let it be that way. Let's pray together. Father, in a culture that just seems to be changing so fast, a time when nostalgia is so therapeutic, we pray, Father, that you would help us to be a battle-ready church, able to enter into the changing cultures with unchanging truth of the Word of God that you would help us to never compromise on what your word says, oh Lord, but help us to always lead with truth. Help us to walk in grace and truth, knowing that we ourselves are the same kind of people that we despise in our hearts. We too, Lord, have been idolaters. We too have been liars. We too have been thieves. We too have manipulated. Oh Father, thank you that Jesus Christ, who was the one who passed every test for us, had his hands and feet bound, and he was not able. He chose, in fact, to suffer the curse for us so that we might be able to pass the test through his merits, not our own. Would you help us now to run to refreshment at your table? And thank you that you're with us to strengthen us for the battle. In Jesus' name, amen.